everybody welcome back to the noel castler podcast episode 93 hope you could hear that okay i know there was a little audio problem last time so i got a brand new macintosh um um got the mac pro it's got a better uh, microphone even though i had a fancy microphone i was having audio issues so i'm trying this episode without a mic got some new lights there in the background for you guys watching on youtube I apologize. It's been a week or two since I've done this. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot going on. So I only want to come and do these, you know, when I feel like I have something to say beyond just being angry and enervated, as as so many of us are. It's It's just been a very long winter, very grueling January so far, I think. Well, January's over. It's February. So that's what I was waiting for. <laughs> I was waiting to get the hell out of January couldn't couldn't leave fast enough and uh i'm just coming off of watching that funeral today i'm i'm you know i'm not even going to lie i don't i don't ever really have much prepared i always have a lot to talk about but i was just i was sitting over there on my yoga mat crying you know for for the hour and a half two hours that it went on it just brought me to tears i found it very moving i found it very sad you know i i don't know what it's like to be you know a, a black a young black man in america but i know what it's like to, to love black people i know what it's like to grow up alongside black people uh, you know kids uh, human beings you know like <laughs> i don't even understand how we how we, how we're still stuck on all this stuff you know how we see any difference in people when they talked about how he just wanted to sit and watch cartoons and eat a big bowl of cereal that was my childhood, you know, the, the neighborhood I grew up in. That's what we all did. And to see how this country has kind of gone in the not kind of has completely gone in the other direction with race relations it is so disheartening, because at least back then in the 70s, you felt like you were coming out of the dark times and it was going to get better. You know, we'd come out of the 60s and the civil rights movement and, and the 70s was certainly the fallout of it. But when I was a kid, you know, I'm talking late 70s, early 80s. I was born in 71, as you guys know. You know, we were still in that sitting in our underoos, eating cereal, watching cartoons. And we all did that together. Black, white, Latino, you know, Middle Eastern. In my neighborhood, it took all time, you know, all types. <laughs> and it was the biggest blessing in my life, even though you know, it, it was seen at the time as sort of an underprivileged place to grow up. I had a single mom, as you guys know, and she was working her butt off, you know, doing the best she could as, as everybody else's parents were in that neighborhood, you know, and we were just trying to get through life and enjoy life. And, and to see, you know, the demonization that happened in the 80s when Ronald Reagan sort of came in and declared war on that community and to see, you know, Lee Atwater and, and the 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 weaving into a narrative of 
fear the young black man. You know, that that's a lot of what I saw by the late 80s. And, and a lot of media played along. There was a lot of articles about wolf packs in New York, you know, and, and and fighting back against these urban cuffs and, you know, kids with guns and all these terrifying things. And that's not to say there weren't, you know, horrific problems in the inner city as, as there are to this day. That's not to say Memphis doesn't have its share of crime, but the, the war on crime was essentially a war on young black men and, and black families. And it, it's heartbreaking that, that we're still dealing with that, that we're not kind of living together and trying to all get along and do the best we can and love each other and lift each other up. And, and we should want everybody, you know, to, to enjoy life and have all the opportunities. I'm sitting there watching the funeral and I get a delivery of FedEx, right? And, and this young black man brings the FedEx to my house down my driveway, you know, probably 30 years old. He could have been the age, you know, of Tyree Nichols, you know, and I was just like, I appreciate you, man. <laughs> I was like crying before he got here and I didn't want him to, you know, see me all crying when I came to the door. And of course, I wasn't going to mention like what I was watching. He's at work. I'm not going to you know, sort of single them out and message it. But I tried to, uh, you know, I tried to project love as best I could. And and it's a hard, it's a hard situation, you know, and, and I can't imagine what that family's going through and, and listening to his mom, you know, it just breaks your heart. And to learn about this young man, that he was a guy who wanted to go photograph sunsets every night. And he did. You guys have heard me talk about the fact that like if there was a religion that I was going to ascribe to in life, it would be like sunsets of religion. I think everybody should head out, you know, when the sun goes down and watch it collectively, you know, as a people and, and then make sure everybody's fine as night falls. You got enough to eat. Your kids have a safe place to sleep, you know another day, another blessing, you know, and then the stars come out and the moon comes out and, you know, everyone's safe in their homes and, you know, sharing music and, and laughter and stories. And, you know, that, that sounds Pollyannish, right? It sounds some like utopian kind of dream, but yeah, yeah. I would think that indigenous peoples have sort of lived that way, you know, for, for, tens of thousands of years right and, and and this culture you know this american experiment we're 300 something years old you know and and, and we're based on capitalism and, and we're based on exploitation that you know we have moved past as a country to to a, a large extent right we don't enslave people and make them do their you know the work for us anymore for no pay now it's low pay right but but we've moved past that but we have a political movement in this country that wants to go back in the other direction that doesn't want to teach history you know today's the first day of black history month it's february 1st the first headline i saw this morning in the new york times was about how the college board had adopted you know and folded under ron DeSantis's pressure to not have these advanced placement you know studies these these african-american studies that that he's waged war on in florida that they've adopted that you know that they're not going to have those questions on on the, on the college board tests that's insane. Like what? How is this happening? How is it getting away with this? And how is it becoming so popular? And it clearly is. 
We see it in Congress. We see it in governorships all across the country. We certainly saw it in Donald Trump and MAGA. We see a reemergence of not only you know fascism and not only overt racism, but a denying of who we really are and a rewriting of history and a false sense of you can do no wrong if you were born a young white man and and the black Americans are not worthy of study. And, and, you, and it's like not having enough faith in a people to tell them the truth. The truth won't hurt you. The truth will set you free. It might be painful and uncomfortable, but those kids in those classrooms learning those lessons are not the same people that were perpetrating these crimes. We're just trying to give an honest narrative and an honest accounting of America and how we've gotten to this moment and how many of our systems have been, you know, stacked against African-Americans in this country for far too long at an institutional level. And I don't need to get all back into that because I pretty much talk about it every week. But it's a shame and it's not doing anybody any favors, okay? It's not doing the children of Florida any favors, black, white, Asian, Latino. You know, they're gonna grow up less than. They're gonna grow up with meager educations that were spoon fed them by racist white men looking to enrich themselves and further their grasp on power. Ron DeSantis went to Yale and got a history degree, okay? He knows the difference. He knows what he's saying is complete lies and it's complete BS, but he knows it's gonna play well with an ignorant, emerging suburban white kind of population in this country that 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 Trump exploited, exploited and branded in a way where people feel completely fine, you know, flying a, a F Brandon or whatever these stupid sayings are flag on their front yard or a blue lives matter flag, which is different than supporting police, right? The blue lives matter was like, you know, screw you. We'll kill whoever we want. Cops can do no wrong. And I grew up very close, you know, in my high school years with the kind of people whose dads were cops and firemen. And I know cops that I love, man. I know people that are NYPD that have been, you know, on the job forever that I love, like I consider family and have very close relationships. That's not to say there is an endemic racism and brutality in policing. There is. It's out of control. And anybody who doesn't admit that is blind to it or, you know, willfully going along with it because it won't affect them right? It won't creep into their suburb and it'll make them feel safer when they go down to the city. And the fear is an illusion anyway, that's being pumped into their homes every night on Fox News and Newsmax and by politicians like, you know, Lee Zeldin, you know, backed by, I think it was Ron Lauder, you know, who, who dumped all this money into his campaign and they put all this crime narrative and they flipped New York. They picked up four congressional seats. The, the Republicans did. That's insane. It's insane that that happened in 2023. But it did, right? And even Catherine Hochul, Kathy Hochul, is now becoming sort of reactionary to, to the success of the GOP and saying that she wants to fund these sort of squads, you know, these specialized tactical units that are going to stop crime before it happens, which is ridiculous, right? 
That, that That's just a misnomer. You can't do that without impinging and infringing on someone's civil rights. I saw it when, when Giuliani was president, president, <laughs> he wish he was president. When Giuliani was mayor, they did that. You'd go in the city uh, and you'd be in the subway and you'd see people getting thrown up against subway walls all the time. You know, cops just kind of, what are you doing? Uh, Amadou Diallo, you know, all those cops jumped out of that unmarked car and said freeze to this young African immigrant, right, who was here to better his life and study. And he was scared and he reached for his wallet and they shot him 41 times as he was entering his home without asking him any questions. You know, that's murder. That's murder. And Giuliani defended them instantly. Right. And people in the white suburbs defended those cops. You know, not everybody when the truth came out, but you weren't really meant to hear the truth. And when that was all going down, I worked for Springsteen on the reunion tour. I've told this story before, probably, but, you know, I, I was hired to work on a bunch of shows we did at the Garden at the end of the tour. They filmed it. Jonathan Demme made a movie about it. It's live in New York City. If you've ever heard of that great E Street Band album. Yeah, it was the first time they'd been back together since since the 80s. And it was an incredible tour and it was an incredible bunch of shows. But it was right when that stuff was sort of roiling New York City, when that particular case and Abner Louima before that. It was an epidemic and it, it, and it sort of reached this tragic watershed moment. And Bruce wrote about it as he does. You know, he's a wonderful chronicler of this country and, and certainly of the tri-state area, especially and he wrote this song and he de debuted it in Atlanta. Now, I wasn't on the tour in Atlanta. I was just to, to work in New York. So he played it in Atlanta. They had a day off and they were coming to New York City. And the New York PBA got wind of the fact that he'd played this song in Atlanta. And the cover of the New York Post was like, you know, the boss says F you to the cops, you know. And it wasn't, I don't think it was Pat Lynch at the time, who's the PBA head now, but it was somebody like that. And they were, he basically like told all his officers like protest Bruce, you know, screw Bruce. So we had to lock down like backstage security, right? Because there was so many like death threats and stuff coming in. Like it was insane. And cops were, you know, getting drunk. I remember a dude like rushed the stage, a cop and like, you know, to put his badge up and was giving Bruce the finger. It was like insane. They were acting like a gang that was beyond reproach. And they held on to that grudge for years, for years. Okay. I, I you know, but I, and I, I shouldn't even tell you some of the stuff they tried to do to him to, to pay him back, but they did it. I've seen it thuggish kind of stuff and uh, endangering crowds, you know, to make a political point and not give him support that he'd paid for. But anyway, because you pay for private security, you pay for police security when you do big events. But anyway, so I brought Amadou Diallo's parents backstage because he, he was playing the song every night. Bruce ain't going to back down. You know, <laughs> you're know, you not going to tell Springsteen what to do and you're not going to bully him. So he played this song because it was an important song. And, and the song, if you actually listen to the lyrics, wasn't attacking the police. The song was from both sides. You know, he was talking about a, a cop, you know, who's got a young wife at home who's heading into the city and doing this job and sort of pumped full of fear and making a split second decision because they're sent out there as if they're going into battle, which is your first problem, right? Because you remember back in the day, you know, cops would carry bully 
clubs or whatever you call them. You know, they would be a little more hand to hand. You had patrol guys walking beats. They knew people in the neighborhood. You know, it was my people like Irish, a lot of Irish cops in New York, you know, Italians and stuff. But, you know, they, they'd sort of be of the neighborhood. They weren't patrolling. They, were, they weren't coming from this sort of insular suburbs as if they were going into battle, which is what happened after the 60s and after the sort of white flight that went to the suburbs. And now a lot of the cops in the suburbs, you know, they live in Orange County or they live in Long Island. And again, I know a lot of these guys. I'm friends with them. You know, all the guys who work at NBC, the security team there, they're all on the job. You know, they're at NBC all day, but these are great guys. I mean, these guys are in my phone. I go to church with them. Like, I, I'm not attacking police. We need police, but we need reform. We need sensitivity, not just training. We, we need to look at what's going on, you know, at what we're telling our police to do to our citizenry, citizenry, right? Because the cops work for us. You know, don't don't tell them that. <laughs> don't say you pay their salary when they pull you over. But we want them to keep our community safe. Everybody does. You know, every American wants to live in a safe place. They want their children to play on safe streets. And a man who gets murdered on the way home, you know, who's calling out for his mom by, by guys that are supposed to be protecting him. And in this case, you know, by guys that were black guys, too. Right. But they were blue in that moment. They were operating as a gang, you know, and I guess there was a white guy involved, too. They didn't really hype that side of it up <laughs> too much. Right. They fired those five black guys real quick. You didn't hear about the, the white guy until like the tapes came out, you know, and, and, and I'm not laughing. There's nothing funny about it. I'm just saying that that's convenient in Memphis. Right. So, you, you know, it, it, it's staggering the loss and the pain. When, the, when those tapes came out Friday, I mean, we all dreaded it all day. They were sort of hyping it up too much, you know, because it, it's like snuff porn. You know, I don't want to see uh, uh, anybody get murdered. I especially, as any of us are, am just beyond tired of seeing this. You know, you have trauma from watching it. They can't imagine what it's like in the black community. I, you know, I, I kind of can, right? Because I do love black people and it looks like my friends, you know? So you see and your friends get murdered. We're not any different. We all bleed red, right? And, and to have any reaction other than how do we stop this and make sure it doesn't happen again is the wrong reaction. We can't keep slipping into this tribalism. Well, you're trying to defund the police, which was the dumbest slogan ever. I hope we can all agree on that. Okay, that didn't do anybody any favors. I understand what they meant by it, but it was a dumb, dumb slogan, okay? But we have to have serious reforms in this country, you know? And the Blue Lives Matter guys kind of disappeared on this case, right? All the other dudes, you know, Derek Chauvin, they were supporting, right? All these other guys, like they were... You know, all these other cops who'd murdered somebody, they were behind, but not this time, you know, since it was black guys who did it. They're like, yeah, you're right. These guys are monsters. They'll <laughs> lock them up. So, you know, I don't know what the answers are. I'm just so, so tired of it. I, uh, I wrote a song, you know, when, when all the stuff, when Michael Brown was murdered by the police in St. Louis, I was on tour with, Cros with Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, uh, 
we were watching the the stuff go down on TV every night. You know, there was all this unrest and everything. And we were in the Midwest. And uh, I remember sitting and catering with Graham one night, whose birthday is in a couple of days. Happy birthday, Graham. But um, we're sitting and catering one night. And I was like, I, I can't even watch this anymore. Like, I, I got to go write a song or something about it. And Graham goes, you're right, Noel. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that too. I'm going to go to go to my room and, you know, after the show and write a song. So we sort of, it wasn't like a contest, but we were both kind of like seeing what we could come up with. And uh, he wrote a song and he got to play it. Um, it's called like Whistle Down the Wind or something like that. And then I wrote a song and uh, I quite liked it. And I gave it to a friend of the band. I'm sure I've told this story to you guys before, who who's married to Arlo Guthrie's daughter, Sarah Guthrie and this guy's named Johnny Irion. He's a good singer. He happens to be the great nephew, great, great nephew of John Steinbeck, which was cool, right? So his wife is like Woody Guthrie's granddaughter, and he's like the great, uh, great, great nephew of, of John Steinbeck, right? So it's like Depression era royalty, right? Dust Bowl royalty. So I gave them the song. They made a great demo out of it, sang it, and it was really nice. And we decided to put it out. Uh, my stipulation was it had to be like a benefit single because it was about something that was happening. I didn't want, I wasn't doing it to make any money. So we put it out and all the proceeds went to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And Morris Dees was the head of the SPLC at the time. And he wrote me a really nice email about like how how his words reminded him, you know, of some of the great, you know, civil rights kind of, uh, I, he, he said it reminded him of something Dr. King had said, and I'm not in any way equating, you know, what I wrote, anything near that. But he said it reminded him of the famous quote about, you know, the, the arc of the moral, you know, universe is slow but swift but it bends towards justice or whatever i'm I'm mangling the quote because i'm embarrassed to even say that but he said it in this email he sent to me and uh it meant a lot you know and, and hopefully it raised a little bit of money and i you know i wish i had the ability to play the song for you i'm on a new mac top and laptop but uh anyway so i wrote this song and, and i ran into crosby the next day and i sent david the the demo you know we were in our day off in a hotel so i emailed him the song i was like johnny just heard this song and he came up to me the next day at the gig you know before the gig we're walking through the parking lot or something and he's like hey no i heard your song you know you should be very happy with what, what johnny did with it i think it's great you know he goes don't tell graham this but i think your song's better you know and that's not i'm not saying i'm a better songwriter he was just like i'll deny it if you tell him i said that but it's better and i'll tell you why because his song sounded a little preachy like he was talking about the external circumstances and he goes your song you did what i like to do and what i teach people about songwriting if you're writing about the eiffel tower you don't sit there and you don't say, I'm looking up at the Eiffel Tower. It's made out of steel. There's lights on top. You know, I can see Paris around it. You don't do it that way. You say, hey, I'm climbing up the stairs to go up to the top of the Eiffel Tower. And I don't think I'm going to make it. You know, and then you got the people. And when he told me that, it was such a moment that he was sharing this insight. And I knew exactly what he meant, because that's what I like in art. Something that puts me there. It makes me feel empathy, 
right? Because it's empathy, as I talk about every week. That's how we really change. And that's what we react to in others. You know, that's what stories are for, to help you understand your fellow man and make sense of your own life, right? Because we're we're in many ways, we're all the same, right? We're, we're not, but we are. And, and anything that brings us closer and brings us, you know, further towards understanding that helps a lot. So that was a, you know, that was a compliment that Cross, uh, that Cross, uh, gave me. And, uh, I know he passed away since I, uh, have done a, an episode and I wrote about it on Substack. I, I kind of like what I said there. So I don't think I'm going to get too much into any kind of eulogy for him. You guys have been hearing a lot of that stuff, but, uh, he was a hell of a guy, man. I mean, he was a force of nature and he was a complicated guy. I, you know, I tell people who are like, I'm friends with Crosby. I'm like, is he pissed off at you yet? And they're like, no. Nope. I'm like, well, you don't really know Crosby yet. <laughs> okay. To really know that man, you, you go through a period of like, he stops speaking to you or you stop speaking to him or whatever. That's just how he was. You know, he was one of those guys who, who, who needed to be pissed off at somebody or, or somebody or something right? It was a big part of his art. He needed to kind of be angry, you know, at the cops or getting the flu or old age or whatever. And that's what kept him Crosby. You know, he was this irascible guy, but he had a huge heart and he had a huge heart for artists. He did so many things that people will never hear about, you know, to help other people out. I remember we were sitting somewhere and I bought a Collings, which is a really nice guitar. And we were in Nashville and I bought a Collings at, at Groon's, George Groon's, a famous, you know, guitar dealer in Nashville. And, and I saw him the next day in the lobby and I was like, ah, you know, I got a Collings last night. Very nice guitar. I sold it. I don't have it anymore. But uh, I got a Collings, Cross, you know, and he's like, oh, let me check it out. It's very nice. He goes, you know, I have a Collings or I had a Collings. He goes, they let me come to the factory. And they let me walk around and like pick out the wood and everything I wanted. And then they built it for me, you know, because he's David Crosby. And I go, oh, where is it? He goes, I gave it away. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, there was a kid in Santa Barbara. He was really good. You know, I saw him in coffee houses and stuff, but he had a crappy guitar. So I gave him the Collings, you know, that's David Crosby, man. You know, that's a $5,000 guitar 20 years ago. You know, not everybody would do that. And he wasn't doing it. You know, I'm probably the only person he told that besides Jan, his wife, you know, like he wasn't doing it for show. It was just who he was. If if you were an artist, he wanted to encourage you and you didn't have to be famous or cool. You know, he was particular about what he liked. If he didn't, if he didn't vibe with you, you probably weren't getting a second chance, you know, but you know, not, that's just who, that's who he was. But if he, he if he liked what you were doing, he was down with it, man. He was going to help you. And he was always sort of, you know, picking people up, you know, like other artists would just come into the fold and he'd be like, who's that? And he'd be like, oh, this great singer, you know, I met her, what, where, you know, such and such and invited her to sound check and stuff. And, you know, he would do these solo tours and he'd pick people he loved to be in his backing band. James Raymond, his son was in the backing band, who was also in Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, you know, Django was his road manager. That's his his, his youngest son with Jan. And I, I kind of helped train Django. I'd known Django since he was like a kid and he became a road manager. 
the last couple of years traveled Europe with us and Japan. And, you know, I, I know they're all hurting, but, uh, well, you know, I remember one time we did a gig with the Dalai Lama up in Syracuse and, uh, I was really excited. You know, I'm going to get to meet the Dalai Lama. I'm like yoga guy, you know, Martin Luther King, the third was there, you know, speaking of that, he was there. It was this big event at the carrier dome and, uh, an incredible, incredible event. And uh, I, I was all excited. I was sitting in the lobby. I was going to meet the Dalai Lama. And Crosby had sort of been mad about some mix-up that happened the night before with his hotel room. He didn't like his hotel room and all that. They gave him like a Murphy bed. It, was, it wasn't appropriate <laughs> for his age, but it was out of my control. But he was pissed. So I saw him the next morning and... Uh, He's coming, he's coming through the lobby and I'm in this line, like a receiving line with all these monks that travel with the Dalai Lama. And first of all, the Dalai Lama was staying in our hotel. So how cool is that? You know, I, I think I've talked about this before. I'm doing handstands and like feeling like I'm getting the power coming up through, through the floors, you know, and uh, I'm standing there and I'm like third in line to, 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 to greet his holiness, the Dalai Lama. And, and as soon as he gets kind of near me, Crosby taps me on the shoulder and like pulls me out of the line and curses me out for, uh, for, for the, I thought you were a professional. No, you weren't last night, blah, blah, blah. But you know, he'd give you shit and, and then he'd, uh, he'd forget about it five minutes later, but you know, that was Crosby and he was friends with the Dalai Lama. You know, I'm trying to remember the guy who produced it. I worked with a lot too, who produced this event and he's the guy who did all the Billy Joel albums and engineered him. He was a real legend. Phil, uh, Phil Ramon, the great producer, Phil Ramon, who I got to work with a ton of times too. I did the Latin Grammys and stuff. So I was like there working for Crosby, but I had all these connections on the TV side too, you know, including Phil and his, you know, second in command, this, this wonderful woman who runs a lot of production, they run the songwriters hall of fame and all this stuff in New York. So they knew me and I was there with Cross. So it was one of those interesting, like I was serving two masters kind of deal. And, you know, there was some drama that went down. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy gig. It never was, you know, but, uh, it, it went off, you know, we, we got it to happen. And, and I remember sitting with Jan, and we watched the Dalai Lama's speech because he gave this talk after all these musical performances. And he gave this little laugh at the end of his talk. And the Carrier Dome is like 90,000 people on it. You know, it's a big basketball arena or something huge, you know, up in Syracuse. And he gives this laugh. And I remember watching it ripple through the crowd and then come back to him like energy. You know, it just went all the way through the crowd and came all the way back. And I turned to Jan and I was like, man, like he just gave his love to the whole audience and you saw it come back like energy, like you could see it. And she was like, I can't believe you noticed that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, you know? And uh, so that was kind of the beginning of my time with them. And I remember backstage that night, there was all these people. Whoopi Goldberg was there who I, I've worked with a lot. I used to be her escort when she would host the Tonys and that she was very close with Crosby and Jan. They were good friends. And there's a, there's a, she has a right-hand man. I won't say his name, but he's like her longtime assistant. Very cool guy. And uh, 
we're, we're, I'm back in the green room with Crosby and like Crosby goes over to see Whoopi, you know, and I'm like his road manager. And then Whoopi's like, Hey, Noel, how you doing? And Randy, her guy's like, Hey, Noel, what's up, buddy? He gives me a big hug. And Crosby's like, what the hell? <laughs> like, I thought you're here with me. How do you know Whoopi? And we got in the, you know, and then it was Cindy Lauper was there, all these other people I worked with who Cindy Lauper, by the way, got, or got nominated for the rock and roll hall of fame today. So long overdue and she should be in first ballot no question but anyway i digress but i remember we got in the car at the end of the night and it was me cross and jan and uh crosby goes he leans forward i'm in the front seat and he goes no is there anybody in the entertainment business you don't know <laughs> and, and i'm not saying that like i'm mr cool and know people i'm saying it like crosby appreciated that right crosby wanted the guy who was going to get things done right? The guy who knew the, you know, who knew everybody in, in a venue, like they want the fixer. That's what Jan kept saying to me. And my first gig ever, I'd already been working for Jackson Brown and they had the same management at this time. This is years ago. And uh, it was the Songwriters Hall of Fame, actually, with, with Phil Ramone and CSN was inducted, was being inducted. And uh, James Taylor came to sing, sing with them. And uh we're actually sitting in a green room and they practiced Helplessly Hoping, which is a Stephen Still song, but it has all their harmonies. And uh, I'm sitting there with a friend of mine who didn't know CSN's music at all. And it's like a little green room. It's at the Marquee, the Marriott Marquee in Times Square. And they practice the harmony. They just run through the chorus of Helplessly Hoping. And my friend, who's kind of more from a gospel, like hip-hop world she looks at me and she goes no i don't know who these motherfuckers are right now but that's from god that singing is from god right there you know and that's what that music did you know music if it hits the right frequencies and, and reverberates in the right way it's universal It'll make anybody feel good and crosby for all of who he was as a person had this angelic quality to his voice that was undeniable when it meshed most specifically with Graham Nash, you know, and then you add on Stephen Stills and, you know, James Taylor, you know, in this instance, Neil Young many times together, but it was Crosby and Nash. I mean, those guys locked in and, you know, Nash was a master of harmony and, and Nash would go up and under Crosby. Nash could just weave weave himself around Crosby's voice in this miraculous way where the whole was so much bigger than, than, than the parts, you know, and, and we, we had this game. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but you know, but the sound guys, the monitor mixers on the side of the stage would often isolate like Crosby's vocal, you know, in the middle of one of these wonderful harmonies and you'd hear Crosby's vocal alone and it would sound like a whale or something, you know, it would sound off key, you know, because he had a very interesting tonality and a very forceful tone and you heard it alone. It would be like, Wah! it was like this weird sound <laughs> and we would just laugh like, what the hell is that? And then you bring in Graham and boom, you know, that's, that's magic. You know, the, the sum was bigger you know, than, than the parts and, uh, or the whole, whatever the, the thing is. But, um, that was amazing. Uh, so anyway, we're doing this gig and, and I told you the green room story and my friends like that's from God. And at the end of the night, 
there's like a way to get out of Marriott Marquis. You got to go through the kitchen and you go down to the loading dock and I can have SUVs pull up in the loading dock and you get out of there and you avoid this notorious scrum of autograph seekers, you know, and, and people have been like, you know, surrounded. And these are the professional autograph seekers. These aren't fans. These are people that get paid. You know, they give them a bunch of pick guards and say, go get the rock stars to sign these and give them back to me. I'll give you 40 bucks. So you're just like getting hunted by these professional audio autograph guys if you leave that venue the traditional way. And it happened to Jackson a few years earlier. I was with Jackson and uh, they didn't want it. They'd heard about that. So they're like, hey, you know, this guy Noel knows a special way out. And it wasn't that special. Like anybody on production <laughs> figured it out. But I happened to be the guy assigned to do it. And I took them out that way and they just loved it. You know, and the very next gig we did, you know, later that year was the the 25th anniversary of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there were these big concerts at Madison Square Garden. And once again, I was I was hired to to work with CSN. So we we're in the SIR and, you know, in the rehearsal studios for a couple of days, which is a I could do a podcast on that alone. You know, Bonnie Raitt rehearsing, Paul Simon. Bonnie Raitt sang with CSN. She sang Love Has No Pride in the rehearsal room. And both Paul Simon, his band, and Springsteen's band all came into our control room to hear her sing this song, is how incredible it was. If you've never heard um, her version of that, she did it. She There's a tribute album to Nicolette, Nicolette Larson where she sings Love Has No Pride the Libby Titus song and uh, who's married to Don Fagan, who I also know who are my neighbors in the city, but like I'm digressing. I'm not trying to make this name drop thing. I'm trying to get to a point. So we're doing this rainy rock and roll hall of fame rehearsal thing. And there's clearly magic, right? Jeff Beck, who just passed away is on the gig with Stevie wonder. I mean, it's just everybody. And, and, and sort of, they did it like different eras of rock and roll. Right. So CSN represented like Laurel Canyon. Right. So we had Jackson Brown and Bonnie and, uh, you know, I don't think Carol King was there that time, but, you know, we've they're all like a family. So they were representing that sort of era. And uh, when we got to the gig, I had to go over there early. So we get to the garden and we had to make special arrangements to have, you know, the SUV drive all the way up backstage at MSG, right? To go all the way to the backstage thing is it's the fifth floor. If you don't know New York City, like the, the first floor of the garden, like where you watch and play basketball is actually five stories up off the street, right? So there's this, you know, circular kind of driveway thing that you can go up there in the loading dock and very few people get like permission to do that. Right. You got to be at a certain level, like Springsteen kind of stuff. You know, they don't let anybody just drive up there. We made arrangements for Crosby to get to do that because he, he was even then, you know, he had health challenges and you wanted to make it as easy as possible on him. So they had stopped him at the bottom. Right. The SUV he was in was stopped. You know, the security guy down there didn't get the memo, which always happens, you know, and they call up over the walkie you know, to see if it's okay. And somebody goes, yeah, Noel okayed it. Not that I'm a boss at the garden or anything, but Noel okayed it. And Crosby hears my name. You know, he just hears that my name 
is said, and next thing they know, they're getting waved through, right? So they drive up there, they get out of the limo. This is a massive event. There were several different production teams involved, one of which was sort of in competition with another. You don't need all the backstage drama, but there's all the kind of politics that happens in production. So all these guys run up and try to like commandeer CSN and pull them aside and bring them to the dressing rooms and I'm kind of stand, standing back and Crosby sees all these people. He sees me in the distance and he points. He goes, listen, the only fucking guy I'm listening to is that dude right there. I'm only going where he tells me where he's going, <laughs> where I'm going. That's Crosby in front of all these guys, you know, these bigger than me rock guys. And they all just had to back off, you know. Those are the moments I'll remember with Crosby. Yeah. Oh, what a loss, you know, what a talent, you know, and I'm so lucky to have all those memories. I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to keep going on about it, but you know, we had some adventures, you know, we took the queen Mary over to England. I talked about that. I think on the last podcast before I knew he'd passed away, he hadn't yet passed away, but you know, we took the queen Mary from Brooklyn to England. Crosby loved to sail. He loved to be on boats but like we hit the biggest storm they'd had in the North Atlantic in like 17 years or something. And there was 50 foot waves up by Nova Scotia by like the Flemish cap. That boat was getting thrown around like a rubber ducky. You know, it was terrifying. And I was like, get me off of this. Like we're sitting in the dining car eating and like a wave would come and the whole boat would list. And you'd see like the wave crash over the windows and you'd see like octopus and bubbles and stuff. Like you'd be like, oh my God, like the ocean is taller than the boat, <laughs> you know, it's like crazy stuff. And Crosby was loving it, man. He wasn't scared at all, you know? And, you know, it's things like that. You tour with people, it becomes like a little family. I, I, I told this story on Twitter, but, you know, I remember one night we were cross loading in Italy which means like, you, you know, you have to get off the bus and you, you're switching gear and stuff. And we couldn't, we were, I think we were in a uh, Verona, right? Where, where's the uh, Romeo and Juliet, like that town. And it's old medieval town, little roads. So you're not driving in there with a tour bus. So, so we have to get off in like the middle of the night, get off the tour buses and these Italian get promoter guys pick us up in these little cars and drive us you know, through this village and they're just flying. They're going like, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour on these tiny little streets. And it's me, Crosby and Django in, in the back of this thing. And it's just like crazy. And, and all these low slung buildings. And we feel like we're being kidnapped or ambushed or something, you know? And I turned across and I was like, dude, we're in Black Hawk Down. Because <laughs> it just reminded me of that movie had just come out or something. He thought that was the funniest thing. He was like, Oh my God, it is. And he's got this, you know, barrel chested laugh, you know, this just laugh that fills the room. It's so loud, you know, and it was a stupid joke, but he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. You know, he just, uh, you know, as a dude who knew how to enjoy life and, and he helped those around him and he was a sweet guy too. You know, if you got sick on the road, Crosby was the guy bringing you chicken soup. You know, he was the guy helping you out if you were in the crew. And, uh, you know, I, I won't keep going into it, but, you know, rest easy, Cross. You know, you earned it. You earned it, brother. Man, it's heavy. 
I guess I should get back to talking about politics and stuff. You know, I don't even know what to say about it all. You know, I, I know everybody's tired. You can feel it. You can feel everybody getting burnt out and tired. And that's part of the design. That's what they're hoping to do. They're trying to wear us out. You know, they're trying to just throw as much stuff at as possible and make it hard to speak out, make it hard to be on Twitter. Elon Musk has pretty much destroyed Twitter. Like we're still on there, but it's not the same experience. Thankfully, you know, there's a lot of the people I love are still on there, but you know, it, it's not what we had even a year or two ago, right? And, and, and that's a danger. That's a legitimate threat because you need that ability to, 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 to give information, right? How did George Floyd protest? Like, how did we really know what was going down with that stuff, right? It was Twitter. You'd see it on Twitter before you'd see it on TV, you know? You can share information about outrages really quickly on there. And they're making that a lot harder and that's by design. And Congress is now just trolls, right? Kevin McCarthy told Jamie Raskin, right? Representative Braskin, who lost his son, right, but to, to suicide, like a week before January 6th, and then had to be the hero and show up on January 6th. And then he had to do the investigation to work on the committee that investigated what went down. And now he's got cancer that he's battling. He's lost his hair. So he's wearing a bandana on the floor of Congress, you know, to make himself feel more comfortable, which is his right as a patient. And Kevin McCarthy, citing some arcane rule of Congress, says he has to remove, you know, his headdress, which is what they tried to do to Ilion Omar too, Representative Omar. It's just bullying of the lowest common denominator. You know, they didn't tell Trump to take the dead ferret off his head, right? When he gave the State of the Union, that ain't real hair either. You know, it actually is real here, but, you know, that kind of dehumanizing stuff, you know, the, the MTG saying COVID is over, you know, the, the, the lack of empathy for, for the pandemic, you know, that, that took over a million and a half Americans so far and isn't over, right? We're not in a global pandemic where things are shut down and you can safely go out you know, being cautious, you should still be cautious and wear masks when you can and be smart about it. But like, you know, we're getting back to business, but to pretend like you don't need any restrictions or any vaccine or just going to be stupid about it is a dishonor to those we lost in this country and the amount of suffering that people went through and the amount of people that I still know that are immunocompromised that can't leave their homes. What does it say to these people that have been home? for three years now to have MTG and a congressman say, you know, I'm introducing an act to say COVID is over. It's insane. It's bullying. It's meant to either make you so angry that you become ineffective, which is what I fear happens to me. You know, the reason I haven't done a pod in a while is I, I don't want to get on here and just rant, you know, angrily at you for an hour. That's not going to help anybody. I don't want to BS you. Things are bad. I want to kind of break this stuff down, but like to process it and not get overwhelmed is a real challenge. And we have to take care of ourselves to do this, 
right? We have to sort of, you know, put some kind of force field around ourselves and, and block out the negativity. And I don't really have, that doesn't mean block out the news. It means block out like the sort of character defects that come up. You know, I always equate things to recovery, you know, cause that's what I have to do. You know, there's a saying in recovery that, you know, justified anger is the dubious luxury of normal men, right? Like you can't even afford to get angry. And, and to me, that's kind of impossible. Like I can't help but get angry when I hear like I did last week, not even last week, it was the other day, right? That, that Bill Barr did all this crazy stuff, right? With, with the other dude who was investigating the investigators, right? What's his name? You know, he was doing the, the report in opposition to the Mueller report, right? I can't think of his name right now. This is why I need you guys. I need some real-time stuff. You know who I'm talking about. The guy whose report hasn't even come out yet. But that guy, how they were traveling around to Italy and trying to get dirt on Hillary Rodham Clinton. This is in 2019, ahead of the election, Bill Barr is traveling on the public, you know, funds on the DOJ's dime, which means taxpayers' dime, to Italy and England, trying to get at the origins of the Russia investigation. You know, and the Brits and the Italians were like, "What do you mean the origins? It was real. <laughs> you know, we got it from our intelligence agencies, and we weren't involved in that." But by the way says the Italians, we do have information that Trump was involved in some international financial crimes, you know? And they were like, oh shit, you know? Well, we better take this information, right? So Barr and the, it's driving me nuts. I can't think of the guy's name. But uh, so Barr and that guy, right? Take the information and then decide to keep it amongst themselves, not to assign it to anybody else at justice. And they came to the miraculous conclusion that no further investigation was warranted, right? That to me is maddening, especially when you know it happened right before Jeffrey Epstein died in the summer of 2019, which very much benefited Donald Trump and very much benefited Bill Barr, right? Whose father worked with Jeffrey Epstein, who hired Epstein to teach at Dalton, even though Epstein was just a student at Cooper Union. He did not have a degree. And all of a sudden he's teaching physics, you know, and in reality, he was his wingman. I know somebody who taught at Dalton at the same era. You know, these guys were creeps, you know, Bill Barr's dad, Donald Barr was a creep. He wrote science fiction novels about teenage sex slaves. He taught up at Hackley school. They nicknamed, he didn't teach. He was the headmaster. They called him Chester the molester. Okay. Bad dude, Bill Barr, bad dude, Opus Dei. You know, these guys are trying to take over the sort of democracy in the name of this sort of Catholic, extreme Catholic fascist, you know, kind of ideology, this super hardcore militant stuff. Barr gleefully talked about the, you know, 13 prisoners that the federal government executed more than we'd had in like 50 years in Trump's final six weeks. He just went on a killing spree. You know, there's a great article about it in Rolling Stone. It was either the last six months, but in January, when he already knew he was like leaving office, they started like, you know, doing it even faster and not giving any pardons. At the same time, Trump is pardoning Roger Stone. He's pardoning Paul Manafort, right? Who was working for Oleg Deripaska, right? Who was 
hired an FBI agent who was also investigating Trump's ties, you know, to the Russians in 2016. That guy was on the take, right? This is mind blowing stuff. It's so hard to keep track of it all and not get pissed off and say, F it. You know, I'm trying to break it out. But just for so for Barr, he had a lot of, you know, reasons to corrupt this stuff. And Kavanaugh is an opus die day. My ex-neighbor, Larry Kudlow, who was Jewish and then became Catholic, explained that, you know, and I'm not dissing Catholics. My, I was raised by a Jesuit, you know, when I lived with my grandparents in high school, my my grandfather was an ex, you know, Jesuit priest, step-grandfather. And my grandmother, you couldn't get a more devout Catholic. Like I'm from Irish Catholic stocks and I, stock, and I know a lot of wonderful Catholics, but there's a lot of corruption there, like there is, you know, in any kind of institution that becomes so rich, they start making their own laws. And there's some kind of weird thing with Bill Barr and, and, and all this stuff. You know, and a, a weird thing about Bill Barr, he went to the Corpus Christi Elementary School on the Upper West Side that George Carlin went to as well. Like, isn't that weird? And then he went to Horace Mann. And I know people who knew him at Horace Mann, where a lot of my friends went and you know, he was a bully then in the late 60s. He was a bully at Columbia. He used to help the cops beat up the Vietnam protesters. So he's always been an asshole, for lack of a better term. He sort of came to fame, to real fame. He worked at CIA in the 70s and stuff. But his big gig was the 80s in Iran-Contra and getting Elliot Abrams and all these guys off who had massacred village villages, right? They were funding death squads that were going into villages in El Salvador, El Mazote in particular, and just slaughtering women and children, you know, in the name of fighting communism. But really horrible stuff, illegally funded in the Iran-Contra affair and the selling of weapons to Iran to fund these rebels and cocaine, obviously, which was flown up from Jim Hole's farm in Costa Rica and dumped in the inner cities and turning the inner cities into a war zone. Those same neighborhoods that I lived in as a kid with my black friends sitting in our, you know, underoos watching Saturday morning cartoons, right? In the late 70s and early 80s, by 1984, 85, were young men to teenagers, 15, 16, 17 year old. And now they're public enemy number one. And there's all kinds of cocaine and guns in the neighborhood. Like, where did that come from? You know, CIA had a big hand in funding that because it was funding all this dark money, kind of dark policy, you know, this, this covert American foreign policy. That's something you have to worry about. And, and that's something that dovetails with all this stuff right now. And I don't want to get on too much of a tangent, but back to Barr and executing all these prisoners, Barr himself smugly said, the only reason we didn't kill more prisoners was because we ran out of time, meaning Biden took office and they had to stop doing it. That's disgusting. And if you read up on all these cases, some of these people should clearly not have been put to death. You know, like not to say that they didn't do horrible things, but I mean, the, the the circumstances, you know, will, will make your heart break. And, and everybody was like telling Trump to pardon some of these guys and he wouldn't do it. And a woman, he wouldn't do it. He doesn't care, you know, and that's who we had running our government. People who didn't care about other human beings, who didn't value life. And, and that should be the first like prerequisite of any leader.
That's why I like Biden because he's an empathetic guy. You know, I, I don't feel like he's BSing me. I feel like he does care. You know, he's like your grandfather or something. And he's smart enough to hire really smart young people around him. You know, I did uh, Sandra Bernhardt's show last week. Sandra Bernhardt is one of my faves, a legendary comedian. And we got talking about Biden. She loves Biden, you know, and she was asking me, what do you think is going to happen in the election? Like, you think everybody's going to say he's too old and stuff? And, and I'm like, probably, you know, and it's a shame because it's a waste of time because I feel like he is the man of the moment. And I tried to make the analogy like, you know, you wouldn't go to Lincoln Center and be like, oh, man, Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein's conducting tonight. He's like 85. Who wants to hear him? He's too old. You would never say that, right? There's some things you get better at as you age, like the, the experience makes you more enriched, you know, as a conduit of this information. And I think of the presidency as a conductor right? He's not there playing the parts. He's there conducting and the different agencies, right? His cabinet make up these different sections. Like in a symphony, you got a string section and a horn section, a brass section, you know, you got timpani drums, you know, you got flutes, woodwinds, you got all this stuff and you got a script, right? You got sheet music, you got a score and you need a guy who's going to set the tempo, and tell you who needs to play when, who needs to emphasize, you know, their thing, who needs to step out and do a solo, when we all need to play together, when we need to hang back, when we need to reach a crescendo. You know, that's what a conductor does. And that's what you want in a president, right? That's what you want in leadership. Somebody who knows how to bring the best out of those around them and let them work in concert, in harmony, right? That's what in concert means right? Working alongside others, you know, to achieve a result. And if it's done right, it makes beautiful music. And nobody says, hey, you know, if that guy is only 40 years old, that really would have been awesome. Like, you're not thinking about that. You know, you just want to be moved, right? And as a, as a, as a citizen, you want to be protected and you want to move our country forward. And you've never had a more difficult score if you want to keep going with this metaphor, then what we have now, right? Because we have crumbling infrastructure, we have environmental catastrophe bearing down on us, right? And since the last time I've done this show, California's continued to have situations. New Zealand is flooding. You know, I, I saw people like swimming in the grocery store in New Zealand. You know, it's freezing. It's going to be supposed to be minus eight here in New York on Saturday. It's not supposed to be minus eight degrees in the Hudson Valley. I'm going to, to, to Broadway to see a play. Like, I don't even want to go out now, you know, and I love going to the theater, but I'm like, God damn, it's going to be five degrees, <laughs> you know, like that's not normal. None of this stuff is normal. Point being, you need somebody who's really good at conveying a message to, to, to make a difference. To, to not have us all just freak out and run in different directions and not deal with it. You want somebody who's like, here, judicial reform, right? Look at the problem we have in policing. As I talked about the top of the show, this is all difficult stuff. And, and in my mind, age is a benefit, right? Because this guy's been through it, man. You know, the, you know, the day after, right, he was sworn in, his, his wife and, and his daughter, were killed in a car accident. You know, he's a single father and a newly sworn in senator who has to, you know, commute 
from Delaware on a train every day to Congress to raise his family, you know, and then goes on to serve for 50 years. That was 1973, you know, 50 years. And he's still doing it. And he got to, you know, he got to be the vice president with Barack Obama, President Obama, you know, who in my lifetime is my favorite, you know. But I think, you know, I think Biden is going to go down like an FDR type guy if we stay on this course, you know. I'm not saying everything is perfect. I'm not psyched about Merrick Garland. My instinct in the beginning was that was the one cabinet choice he was going to regret because that guy is not reading the room. And I, I don't care what you say. And I'm still under the belief they're going to indict Donald Trump and they're going to move forward and all this. But you need to appease people. OK, we we need some sort of sense that the scales of justice are coming into balance and we're not getting that right. Trump's on the campaign trail again. You know, he was in New Hampshire last weekend taking selfies, you know, in a McDonald's. Pardon me with his fans and shit. You know, like, how is this happening? How is this guy not in jail? But he's not. And I think that's going to be a family. Not that you could just go in there and lock him up, but you got to at least look like you're moving in that direction. And, and finally, you know, appointing a special counsel, you know, a special prosecutor, you know, two two years into the thing. That that's 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 not to my liking. You know, I feel like Sally Yates, wasn't that her name? Or is that Sally Yates, right? Or is that I don't know if that's I don't know if I'm mixing up Sally Ride, the astronaut. I think it was Sally Yates, right? Like that, I think she would have kicked ass. <laughs> you know, I feel like she would have given us what we want. And, and that's not saying you got to drag the guy out in, in shackles, but you, you have to make us feel like something has changed. And that stuff I just said about Bill Barr is clear like the DOJ was imminently corrupt. God, I almost had that guy's name, the report. I'm going to remember it as soon as I end this podcast and it's going to drive me nuts. And some of you guys are probably saying it out loud as you listen to this. But uh, anyway, so, you know, we're getting a lot of indications that the FBI was corrupt. That's not in, in indication, right? They, 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 they indicted an FBI agent for being a spy for Deripaska, you know, which is essentially Putin. That's Putin's biggest oligarch. And that's the guy who funded Paul Manafort. And that's what Paul Manafort was doing, working for free for Donald Trump and his campaign. Manafort did it without a salary because he owed tens of millions of dollars or at least $10 million to Deripaska. And that was how he was paying him back by delivering him a president of the United States. You know, and, and this story goes way back. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to confuse people I'm I'm still trying to remember this guy's name. It's going to drive me absolutely bonkers. Durham, Durham report. Anyway, <laughs> that was going to drive me nuts. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to confuse people because this stuff is like Byzantine at this point. If I could break it down in a nutshell, the bar represents a time. Maybe I should do this next week, but but you know the the Iran Contra stuff was a time where where a lot of money started to move around globally, right? The Soviet Union was collapsing, corruption and kleptocracy was taking hold, right? Meaning the oligarchs and the guys who controlled things like Russell, which is Oleg Derek Paska owns a big aluminum company, right? So there's a ton of money in minerals, 
aluminum, oil, gas, these natural resources that Russia has, that's where the wealth is in Russia. They don't make anything. You know, their GDP is the size of Italy or something, and they're not making Ferraris and beautiful clothes and all the great stuff they make it in, in, in Italy, not to diss Russia, but like, you know, Russia's massive. If you look at it on a map, they don't really make much. They make vacuum tubes for guitar amps, you know, and oil, right? Crude, cheap oil. And that's where the Koch brothers come in, as I've talked about. They helped crack their crude. Cracking is the term you use for breaking down really crappy crude oil. It needs extra refinery, extra refinement, right? And that's what the Koch brothers' dad did under Stalin. He set up all these refineries in Russia. So their wealth comes from natural resources, which is exploiting the environment, right? And those companies are controlled by, you know, oligarchs, right? And those guys had all the money. And when the Soviet Union started collapsing, there's a lot of cash on hand that you need to get out of the country. That cash started to come to the US. And a lot of people felt okay looking the other way because cash is still cash, you know? And it's still getting pumped into the economy and spent. And that benefits a lot of people, which is why Donald Trump got a pass in the 80s, because he was selling these condos, right? Trump Tower, places he built in Florida, places he built all over New York City. They're selling them in LLCs, right? Meaning you don't know who's buying it. It's just a company name for all cash deals to Russian oligarchs. And everybody's kind of looking the other way, but a lot of money's coming in and a lot of money's coming in in South Florida and cocaine is getting trafficked at the same time. Like Trump's helicopter pilot, Joseph Weichelbaum, who got busted for flying kilos of cocaine to Kentucky, North Carolina, and Ohio. And he got busted in Ohio and he was in business with Trump. They had a helicopter company that flew high rollers to Atlantic City, right? So they're business partners. And he, the front in Miami was an auto dealership, right? And they would co cocaine would come in to South Florida. They'd unpack it, unload it at this auto dealership in Miami. And then they load it up on planes and helicopters and Trump's pilot would fly it up right, to the mid-Atlantic states. And then he gets busted in Ohio. And, and you get busted in the 80s with a couple keys in your in your helicopter, like you're in trouble, right? <laughs> War on drugs kind of thing. And he it gets moved. It gets moved to his sister's district in North Jersey, right? Trump's sister, Mary Ann Barry, right? So she recused herself because her husband had actually been on the same pilot, you know, on the same helicopter with this guy and she knew him. So she recused him, got a Trump friendly judge in her place that she appointed. He read a letter in court that, you know, was written by Donald Trump and it said what an upstanding guy, you know, this Joseph Joey was, they called him, you know, and he gets a slap on the wrist essentially. And while he's standing trial, he gets an apartment for him and his brother in Trump Tower. Right. And then when he gets out of his slap on the wrist, which was like 13 months at Danbury, he gets another Trump Plaza was where the apartment with his brother. Then he gets his own condo in Trump Tower that he pays all cash for when he gets out of prison. Where does he get this cash? Right. There's obviously a lot of money in cocaine dealing and it's floating around. And the government or the powers that be decided certain people could move these <clears throat> commodities around, right? It's bad if it's inner city black guys packaging it, packaging it up and cooking it and selling it on the streets. Then it's 
the evil to the extent we have to militarize our police departments and lock everybody up. But when it's white collar, when it's Donald Trump selling it out of Trump Tower to investment bankers, as he was doing forever, you know, it was an open secret. You could go to the poker rooms and the poker dens in Trump Tower and buy cocaine. You know, you could buy cocaine, you know, at his, his casinos, right? Everybody's doing cocaine in the 80s and 90s. They still are, right? People are always going to do drugs. You know, the war on drugs is stupid anyway. That's not to say to do drugs. It just, you know, people are going to do drugs. You might as well make it safe for them, right? But anyway, you see my point? There's certain people that are allowed to work with above the law right? For, for the greater good in the minds of these people. And Bill Barr was somebody who was always down on that plan. Most people never really picked apart the Iran-Contra scandal and what was going down with all that and the CIA selling drugs. But Barr knew about all that, you know? Barr, you know, former CIA guy, AG, you know, under H.W. Bush, who was partners with Manuel, you know, Noriega, H.W. Bush was when he was at CIA. So that's his drug dealing buddy, you know, who it was okay when we were getting the money to send the coke through Panama, which is a waste station as well for a lot of drug trafficking out of South America. They bring it up to Central America to Panama, which we essentially controlled because of the canal. And then he didn't play right anymore. And then they arrested him, right? Noriega and brought him to Miami, right? You should watch the Panama Deception, Barbara Trent movie sometime. So this stuff is complicated and I'm sure I've lost all of you guys already. But my point, think of it as like, there's another economy. There's a gray economy that moves around the world that moves money. And, and it has to do with money laundering and drug trafficking and human trafficking now. And that's things like, you know, Robert Maxwell, who was just Lane Maxwell's dad, who Jeffrey Epstein was very intimately involved with, you know, with financially, you know, laundering money. Nobody ever really knows where Epstein got his money from, right? Maxwell was also an arms dealer. You had Adnan Khashoggi, Trump bought Khashoggi's yacht in the 80s. So all of these characters, all of these same players, they pop up in all of these scandals. And Barr's the fixer. He's the common denominator in a lot of this, and he knows the big picture, and he knows where the loose ends are. And Trump is somebody who was able to operate in that world essentially with impunity until it got too big, you know, until he got into the Deripaska world, until Putin decided he wanted him to be president, you know, and Mark Burnett had rehabbed his image to the American people. And now we have what we have, Right. A, a sort of a rogue former president, you know, who in the last 24 hours has said some batshit crazy stuff, you know, attacking our intelligence agencies, attacking FBI on his true social stuff, like stuff that you would never believe an ex-president or a president would say Trump saying because he's out of his mind. And the scary thing about Trump is if you had a guy who was more self-disciplined, like a Ron DeSantis is, who is also sort of familiar with the dark arts, right? DeSantis was at Guantanamo torturing people. He was as a Navy JAG. He was in the Fallujah, Fallujah surge telling special forces, Navy SEALs, like what was within the Geneva 
convention in terms of interrogating enemy combatants, as they call them, you know, going into villages and, you know, torturing people essentially, right? So here's a guy who's willing to do all kinds of stuff for the country, and he's probably going to keep secrets better than Trump. Not that Trump hasn't kept the secrets, but Trump's a loose cannon and he's out of his mind, you know, and, and I'm surprised he's still alive knowing, you know, knowing how these guys operate. So, you know, I, I don't want to get too into it now. I've been talking your ear off for a while, but you can see how all that stuff is connected. And if you can't see, I'll try to do a better job of explaining it. And there's some of it we frankly don't know, but you know that the same people keep popping up. And if you can keep that in mind, that there's another sort of economy that happens and people who are involved in that world get a pass often, just like the, you know, the, you know, the, the mafia is allowed to operate to a certain extent, right? Everyone knows there's certain industries they got their hands in. Nobody goes and bugs them for trash collection, you know, stuff in Jersey, right? You just, you give it to them kind of thing, right? Because it goes to the greater good in certain people's minds. That's how you begin to understand some of this stuff, you know, and it's difficult. But that New York Times bar story last week was Durham bar story was nuts. It was bonkers, you know, and, and I'm sure you saw a lot of people react accordingly. And then it kind of just fell out of the news cycle. And that's what I'm talking about with this, like, we're, we're overloaded at this point. You know, Rachel Maddow did a great program the other night on, on how Barr tried to get the, the Stormy Daniels stuff shut down, which is now open again, thankfully, in New York, you know, but he was trying to get him to even reverse the Michael Cohn judgment and stuff. He was trying to get his boy off for campaign finance reform. As an AG, as attorney general, he was doing that, you know, and the Epstein case, he said he was going to recuse himself from because Epstein was his client when Barr was in private practice after his first stint as AG, right? He was his client when he came back as AG after auditioning for the role to be Trump's AG. And somebody asked him, right? Because I think he was a little blindsided by the Epstein arrest. Somebody asked him, you know, you're obviously going to recuse yourself, right? And he goes, yeah, of course I am. And then he reversed that decision the next day and said, no, actually, all the information about his case has to come to me first. Barr oversaw that case. Epstein shows up dead. Barr visited New York apparently a few days before. I'm not saying Barr went into the cell and hung himself, but very suspicious death. And Barr didn't bother to raid Epstein's island until after Epstein was dead, you know, or the house, you know, on, on 71st Street, which, I, you know, I have friends of mine have been insulted, assaulted by Trump and Epstein in that place. So there's a lot of shady stuff and a lot of secrets that people don't ever want you to hear. You know, and Trump is in the middle of all that. And the guys on the, the outside of it are more than happy to enable it. And in many ways they've won, right? Because the bad guys are in not in charge because we have Biden, but you know, you have Kevin McCarthy and all these freaks in Congress now that, you know, have no compunction you know, about doing bad stuff and, and no desire to figure out the truth, right? It's all like whatever Trump wants or whatever, you know, their benefactors want is what's going to happen. And a lot of that is going to be chaos designed to wear you out. But I know it's not going to wear you out, right? Because we have each other. We have love. We have peace. We have harmony. We have music and art. And my suggestion is that we, we drink of that cup, right? Drink up, you know, 
take as much in that that makes you stronger, that makes you feel better, because we're going to need all hands on deck, you know, for what's coming. Because in another couple of years, we got another election. So anyway, I will shut up now. I hope the audio is okay. I hope you like the lights. I, I got some fancy lights and I got a nice comfy chair to sit in. So I'm styling. Hope you guys are too. Thanks for listening. I love you as always. Episode 63 of the Noel Kassler podcast. I'll play some more music next time. But uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Peace. <laughs>